0: Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time
1: to live. I don't take pride in my ears, for the music business, or my eyes for the movie business. Um, But if I have one talent in business, uh, it seems to be, to identify great talent in other people. You can't be all things all people at all times if you're busy, but you can establish priorities. You know, we probably only can have a handful or less of priorities at time I have four. You know, my family and my friends, my work, my fitness, and uh, charitable work and mentoring. How can I be better at what I choose to do? How can I learn more? Uh, How can I be kind even when I don't feel like it? You know, how can I make this day beautiful? beautiful,
0: beautiful? All right, before we jump into this episode, I want to invite you to be considered for my Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind by completing an application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com. So this mastermind is not like any mastermind you may have been to or heard of, I promise you. and really, really want to level up your tribe in one shot. Fill out an application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com. We'll jump on a call and we'll see if it's a good fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Strauss Zelnick, at Strauss Zelnick. So... I wanted to have Strauss on the show because he really exemplifies the work hard, play hard lifestyle in such a real way. So on the work side, he was the chairman and CEO of Columbia Music. He was the chief executive officer of BMG Entertainment. He was the president and chief operating officer at 20th Century Fox which, by the way, is where he greenlit Dirty Dancing, which we get into. He got his MBA from Harvard Business School. He got his law degree from Harvard Business School. I can go on and on and on. But what's interesting to me is on the play side, he decided that he was going to get younger every year. And at 61, he looks like a 30-year-old. No, really? Google him. Strauss Zelnick. Go check it out. He looks like a 30-year-old. So the fact that he was willing to give me the time of day for this interview speaks volumes for who he is. So please enjoy this interview with Strauss Zelnick. Strauss, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know what? I am super excited that you're willing to take the time to do this with us today. It really means a lot to me. And I thought that what we can do is we can kind of break it up into uh, three parts. First, we'll talk a little bit about uh, the kind of work you've done in the past, maybe talk about some strategies that you've had to achieve the level of success you have. Then I'd like to flip it and move into uh, fulfillment and talk more about what you're doing with uh, fitness and the book that you created. And then we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Sounds good to me. So I think a good jumping off point would be to take you back to Boston in the early 60s. Can you describe for us what it was like growing up with five siblings?
1: Uh, well, it was busy and it was a little bit chaotic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, it was it was a, a lot of fun at times. Other times, it was challenging. You know, my my folks had made sure to get a house that was big enough so we could each have our own bedroom, which they thought was an important idea. I'm not sure I agreed when when I raised my own uh, kids. I insisted that my boys share a room because uh, I thought that was probably healthy. But um, so we each had a certain amount of privacy, but there was a good deal of chaos. There was a lot of love in the family, um, and there were also challenges like, like all families.
0: Yeah, I Bet, your uh, your dad was a lawyer and you've sort of described him as more of an intellectual. Do you think that that was one of the reasons that inspired you to get into Harvard and then you know ultimately move on to getting your law degree and
1: MBA degree? My parents were very recessive parents about what I did in school and what I sought to do professionally. They weren't enough, a tiger mom or dad. To the contrary, you know, they... They were very supportive. They tended to be, you know, whatever I did was was good. I didn't have the kind of parents that if you brought home an A-, minus, they said, well, you could have gotten an A. Or if you brought home an A, they said you could have gotten an A+. And they also didn't project onto me their goals, you know, for me. I, I was able to forge my own path. And there was a long period of time when I wanted to, to be a creator. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. I wanted to be a writer. And that was fine with them, too, and they were supportive of that. They didn't they didn't say hey you need to go to a certain school or go to grad school at all but the reason it's an insightful question is I you know I didn't have any interest in being a lawyer practicing law I, I really had an interest in running entertainment companies but I did apply to law school and one of the reasons I chose to go to law school is that my father had gone to the same law school and I knew it would mean something to him and he'd never asked anything of me and I thought I thought actually it'd be a nice honor a nice way to honor him and I think actually, he was really touched when I when I went to law school. As it turns out, it was a great experience. I, I, didn't, I still didn't want to be a lawyer, but I learned a great deal in law school, and I'm glad I had the education.
0: Do you think you... Are, are your kids of college
1: age yet? Yeah, my boys have already graduated. Did they go on to Ivy League schools like you did? No, they went to... I, I didn't go to an Ivy League college. I went to Wesleyan, which is a small school uh, in the Northeast, and they also went to a small school in, Nor- in the Northeast called Williams.
0: Mm, interesting. Okay, how did you get the
1: nickname "the Prince" from your brothers and sisters? You've done altogether too much research. Um, <laughs> so I didn't find this out till years later. oh let's see. I always like nice things. I'm, I grew up in it. My dad was a lawyer. He was successful. We had, we had a nice. We had a nice house household, but we weren't. We were by no means wealthy. But I think uh, we, there was no secret that I liked nice things, and I like sports cars and nice clothing. I always made money. So I, you know, I was one of those kids who worked after school and worked on the weekends. So I always had spending money. And I think, I think there was some sense, that, you know, I, I think that they felt like I, I deserved that nickname.
0: <laughs> you mentioned earlier from early on, you had a dream to head a movie studio, which is interesting because not a lot of people, you know, at such a young age would have that dream to what do you attribute that drive to at such a, uh,
1: a young age really well I mean I'd love to uh, you know give it some um, flattering characteristic because but it'd be hard to first of all I, I didn't even go to the movies as a kid it was not you know we weren't really allowed to watch television my folks didn't take us to movies we didn't have sweets in the house like <laughs> so I, I don't know where I came up with the idea that making movies was something for me but I did I think I had some sense that it was... You know, about as far away from Boston as you could go, and that it was glamorous uh, and that, you know, there was money involved. I think that's what I thought, but I'm not sure it was so long ago. I mean, I was a little kid.
0: Yeah, right. In your senior year at Harvard, you did an internship with uh, Viacom. Can you tell us the story of being given an assignment to review? If, if my research is right, 10,000 movie contracts to determine whether Viacom had the rights to uh, some Sinatra movies.
1: I was in what's called rights clearance, which is a part of the business affairs department where you figure out if the company can exploit some rights in a certain way. And Viacom had been spun out of CBS as a so-called syndication company when the laws changed in the U.S. They've subsequently been changed back. So this is ancient history. And the rights that Viacom exercised were to license rights to play old, largely old TV shows, but also some old movies made for television, for broadcast television uh, after the network run, both in, in the U.S. and outside and uh, then this new medium came along and i was you know this was the beginning of my career i guess as a new media guy and the new medium was video cassette distribution also known as home entertainment and you know companies were suddenly making a lot of money taking properties they had made for maybe for cinemas or or for broadcast television and repurposing them and selling them on video cassette. so they wanted the folks at icon wanted to know if they had the right to take those titles and distribute them on video cetera, or whether those rights had stayed with cbs so that's called right rights clearance. so i was li- i literally went into like this little cubicle with ten thousand contracts stacked up around me it was really depressing and uh, i looked at that was going to be my summer and uh, oh and by the way i'm not the most detail oriented person on earth it's not that's not an attribute incidentally so uh, but i am reasonably clever so um I, I realized that virtually all the contracts, because I started randomly reading them, had the same grant of rights, which is you know the, ex, the ex, sort of the explanation for what rights you have. And so I went to one of the business fairs execs and I said, do all the CBS contracts have the same rights grant? And he said, yeah, they all do, except for the Frank Sinatra movies of the week. I was like, oh, okay, are you absolutely certain? I said, yes, I'm certain. So I thought, well, now all I have to do is determine what the grant is and whether they're all the same. So the grant... Um, was the same. And I I think I read like 200 grants, but all you had to read was one paragraph. So that took a couple days. And then um, I read all the Sinatra contracts and indeed the grant was different. And then it was easy to interpret that, you know, the nature of the grant. So I went to the head of the business affairs department at the end of the week and I said, well, I'm I'm all done. And he said, you can't possibly be done. And I said, well, it turns out I'm all done and you have video set distribution rights in all of the material uh, except for the Sinatra M.O.W.s. And of course, that was that was an heroic moment because it was if if I had delivered all these rights unexpectedly, of course, all I did was read the contract. But that led me to get a whole lot more responsibility that summer of ICOM, and I got to work on a whole bunch of interesting stuff. Is that sort of a
0: thread throughout how you approach things, looking for sort of that uh, that way that you don't have to look through ten thousand you know contracts?
1: Well, that would describe. That, I mean, I I would like to think my career is built on more than just being the laziest guy on earth, but um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, I do think I'm reasonably practical, and you know, in everything that you do. One way to get through a lot of complex material is just read everything endlessly, and the other way to do it is find what really matters and focus on that. And there, there's a time and a place for everything. You know, there's certainly times when you absolutely have to be meticulous and detail-oriented. And while I may not necessarily be wired that way, I'm able to do that work when I need to. And then there are other times where pattern recognition and a small amount of uh, research will get you to the same place. But I guess the trick is knowing the difference.
0: Yeah, we're gonna to have to jump around to a lot of different places because you have lived one amazing freaking life. I got to tell you. I mean, I you know I could literally do twelve hours with you, so I'm gonna to have to bounce around to different areas um, that I think people will find really interesting. If we fast forward a bit in your career, can you take me back to the moments that you had to decide if you were going to greenlight the movie Dirty Dancing, and maybe talk about what it felt like? To, or feels like to greenlight something that could really go either
1: way? Well, I was new to the movie business. I was so new. You know, I was really clueless. And because uh, I had come out of uh, international television distribution and, and home entertainment, and now was making movies, and this was the first one that I had to opine on uh, as president of the company. And um, so the team came in, and including the producer... And the writer, director, and the choreographer, and uh, they started pitching. And you know, usually greenlight meetings don't really work this way in the real world, but it did them. So they they actually did the whole pitch of the movie, even though they've been working with our creative teams for a while. They did a pitch, and the pitch included, um, you know, this is going to redefine the way young women look at their lives. This will establish new trends in the way young women dress. Uh, this will have hit records. This movie will win an Oscar. This will be the highest grossing film of all time, independent film of all time. And the like, they made all those promises. And so the more they make promises, the more I'm thinking, oh, please, really? I mean, none of this is going to happen. And I didn't say that. I'm thinking it to myself. And, you know, how unrealistic is this? And the truth is, I didn't actually find the project all that compelling. but set in the Catskills. The leads were not, I mean, Jen. Jennifer Grey wasn't really known at all then. Patrick Swayze was, was sort of kind of a minor star. In fact, Destron had his first picture in its catalog. But he was minor, a minor star and dancer, talented. And I, I thought the story was a little horny and pedestrian, frankly. But, you know, we were in the business of making low-budget movies, and the creative team was incredibly passionate about it. So I said yes. And of course, the picture redefined the way young women looked at themselves, established new trends in the way they dressed, hit records, picture won an Oscar, and it went on to become the highest closing independent film of all time. So what did I know? I
0: mean, it's crazy. It is, does that come from a gut reaction or were you just, you know, sort of crowdsourcing it?
1: No, I mean, I, I want to be really clear. I'm, you know, I, I really appreciate creative work and I love entertainment. I am not the creator-in-chief. And you can tell by that story that my experience of it was not, oh, I get it, and I have a vision for it, and I see it. My experience was, we have an incredibly talented creative team. They've been working on this for a long time. They really, really believe in it. I need to support you know, their vision and their passion. And um, you know, so this, the punchline is not how awesome I am at selecting movies because I already told you I, I wasn't really very compelled by it. Besides, post, had I suppose I'd been left to my own devices. I might well have said no. The reason I said yes is the team believed in it. You know, the team was um, Steve Ruther, Mitchell Canold, and Ruth Vitale, you know, and That was their work, and they believed in it, and they deserve all the credit for it. You know, I was just an innocent bystander who didn't get in the way. You know, I have another story like that, um, which is when, when I took over BMG, I, I knew as much about the record business as I had known about the movie business when I started at Vestron, which is to say zero. And um, part of BMG was the RCA label, and the RCA label had have, have been underperforming for a very long time and had no rock and roll hits. And so what I did was, because you know we had a very limited amount of resources at RCA, we're losing money, I not want to lose money. So I, I walked around the hallways to meet everyone and um, said, look, um, while we're meeting, can you just again this is this years ago when there still was a robust record business before everything changed with the advent of digital distribution since the late 90s and i said can you just just play me the unreleased record you're most excited about and uh because i wanted to see what we had on deck and if we had anything at all that you know maybe could turn into a hit this company hadn't had it and so on so everyone played me the same single and unlike motion picture business you know, I actually knew something about the music business. I had been a singer-songwriter. I'm not a successful one, but I was a musician. You know, I would actually as a trained musician, and I certainly had a point of view about music. So I'm listening to this single, and I have to admit, you know, I didn't hear much in it. There wasn't, it wasn't a traditionally uh, constructed song. It didn't fit neatly within a radio format. And uh, it ran a little long, and it didn't have a hook, really. As, and it certainly didn't have a chorus or a bridge. I don't really know what to make of it. But every office I went into, everyone played me the same single. the end of that day, we had a group meeting, and we really had to make a decision about what unreleased artists we were going to get behind, because we didn't have the marketing monies available to get behind more than one meaningful project to start. And um, everyone voted for this artist. And I, I said, because it was true, I'm not sure I hear it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I don't hear it. But if you all are super passionate about it you believe in it, we're going to get behind it. And we did. And that was Dave Matthews. And that was his first first hit record. And, of course, he went on to huge success. And that was really the regeneration of the RCA label. Really brought us back into a leadership position in rock and roll. Uh, Brought us a whole bunch of other acts. And ultimately, of course, brought us the the boy bands and the girl bands, too.
0: So that's two times
1: you got out of the way. (laughs) Yeah, I got out of the way. Boy, it would be tempting to take credit for both, but really the, the story is, is more true about me, which is um, I don't take pride in my, um, my ears, for uh, the music business, or my eyes for the movie business, or my game playing skills in the video game business. I don't even play video games. Um, but if I had one talent in business, uh, it seems to be to identify great talent in other people, to be willing to take meaningful risks on that talent, and not only to support their passions, but to insist that they pursue their passions. And then to make sure they work within a business enterprise that's rational, highly effective, well-capitalized, and kind. And I am really proud of that. I'm not sure it's much of a skill, but it is my skill. And I will say that you know, our enterprises over the years have delivered an unparalleled hit ratio in every entertainment business that there is.
0: Is that a gut feeling when you have the person in front of you that you're about to hire? You know,
1: gut feeling would imply that I have some sort of magical ability to see inside people. It really isn't, it's because I sit down and talk to them. But you wouldn't know it from this conversation. But I really, really listen, and I get to know who people are. And with creative people, I think you can. It's such an overused and hackneyed term now, but you can tell if someone is authentically creative by the way they present themselves and their approach and their projects. And of course, you know, they have to have a track record too. You know, we're not we're not making it up as we go along. These are. I've been fortunate to work in enterprises maybe they were turnarounds but they've been around a long time including take two you know when we came to take two we had a lot of issues take2 had already been around for 14 years when I got here you know it didn't just you know I, I didn't create it. it just you know it didn't just show up it, they've had a lot of experiences and they've had a lot of success with Grand theft auto when I got here it was not big. Speaking of Take Two,
0: in 2007, you agreed to help turn around Take Two, which is uh, for those people that don't know what Take Two is. It's a video game. They're publishers of Grand Theft Auto and NBA 2K, and now have a revenue of over two billion, which is this
1: year, this year, very nearly three billion.
0: Three billion, which is you know four times what it was before you got there. From just a super high level, broad stroke perspective, do you? Have any you know pre-game ritual or anything that you do or maybe things that you don't do when you're thinking about coming into a company and turning it around?
1: Well, I mean, there's certain things do, you would always do when you look at an enterprise, which is first, you want to make sure that it's highly efficient. Generally, you can reduce costs at companies. And by definition, if we're doing a turnaround, the company's got some issues. So you look at costs and that... To some people's ears, that sounds like fire people. That's not what I mean at all. You look typically at what your vendors are charging you, You know, what the costs are unrelated to your personnel are, and usually you can reduce those through negotiation or making choices. So you know, we'll shut down unnecessary offices or renegotiate supplier agreements or the like, cut down marketing expenses. And it's really only after we dig in for a period of time that we begin to look at the staffing and make sure it's the correct number of people if the right people are in the right jobs. And sometimes, of course, that can mean that we reduce headcount. count. Although in the case of Take-Two, we've only increased headcount count over the years. When we first got to re- reduce headcount, count, but it was brief. Since then, we've been in growth mode, uh, which would obviously be our preference. So efficiency is part of the strategy. The second part is creativity. And you know, all of these businesses are creative businesses. We want the best and the brightest to do their best work. And then, of course, we want typically more than we had before, you're a hit-driven business. You want more hits. That falls within creativity, and the finally innovation. So that whatever business you're in now, you know the businesses that we choose to become, become involved with um, are going to be influenced by digital technology, and transformation will occur. Will occur whether you like it or not. So we try to be on the leading edge of that transformation and innovate accordingly. Just as an example, when I arrived here at Take Two, 100% of our revenue came from physical distribution. And today, maybe on average, 65% or a little bit less comes from physical distribution. The rest is digital distribution. That only worked here because we built a digital distribution team initially led by just one person, Steve Now That's quite a robust team. And they set out to make sure that our products were readily available in digital outlets all around the world. That's what they did. We have the broadest digital distribution of any company in the business.
0: Okay. Amazing. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about how you found yourself in the world of fitness. You are in your 60s. Are you 62 now?
1: Don't make it worse than it is. No, I'm still 61. All right.
0: 61. Okay. You're 61 years old. I am 52 years old. You look better than most 20 year olds. I'm sure you hear that every day. I'm not saying anything that you don't hear. You do. So let's just, you know, let's, let's just call it what it is. All you got to do is Google, Google, um, Google your name. And, uh, there's a lot of pictures with you with your shirt off. And there's no way every time I look at that picture of you, that black and white shot, I said, there is no way that that man is 61 years old. Can you tell us the moments that you decided that something needed to change in your health and fitness?
1: Well, I mean, it's tempting to tell a, you know, a, a radical transformation story, but I am I'm fortunate in so many ways. But you know, one of them is that I never tended to fat. You know, I, I, I was one of those annoying people who could eat whatever he wanted, not gain weight. That isn't true anymore. I have to get a little more attention, but it was true. So, so on the one hand, I, I wasn't carrying around, around a lot of extra weight. But on the other hand, I wasn't super fit. And it was in my late 30s that I read, um, I believe my late 30s, maybe early 40s, that I read a book called Younger Next Year. And it basically took the position that the view that you have to decline from middle age on is incorrect. And the way to avoid that is to exercise five or six days a week, limit, strictly limit, limit how much alcohol you drink, eat, and eat a moderate diet, and try to live a happy life. And I took that to heart. And I, I had previously been you know your standard sort of three-day-a-week gym guy, You know, bring something to read, maybe do some work, maybe talk to people. You know, at the end of an hour, I figured it was a workout, take a shower, and I felt like i had a workout. And um, and I wasn't, I really, I was in fine condition by most people's standards for, you know, a late 30s, early 40s guy, but, but I wasn't particularly athletic and I, I wasn't in great shape. So the book really motivated me to pick up the pace and I started going to the gym more, but I really wasn't very expert in what I was doing. So I was mostly like doing the elliptical and, you know, newsflash. The elliptical is not a great way to get in shape. It's better than watch, sitting around watching television, eating potato chips, but only marginally. So I would do the elliptical on my cardio days, and then I'd do a very simple sort of 40-minute uh, weight circuit on on weights days. And finally, uh, my wife, who is not a big fan of my attachment to fitness, said to me, you know." you really should think about getting a trainer. And I said, no, I don't really want a trainer. They're annoying. They talk to you. And moreover, you know, I'm in better shape than all the trainers I see at the gym. She said, yeah, well, I just made a trainer. Trust me, you're not in better shape than he is. I I said, I don't know. I don't really think I want to get a trainer. And she said, well, let me put it to you this way. For a guy who spends as much time at the gym as you do, you're not really in such great shape. (laughs) Ooh, that must have hurt. So I hired the trainers, and his name was John Kim. I trained with him three days a week at 6 a.m. for two years. It was absolutely brutal, and he really, you know, whipped me into more decent shape. And coincident, coincident with that, a buddy of mine and I decided to get road bikes, and I started cycling. So I was doing some cardio that actually was meaningful, and I really enjoyed it. And I realized that training with other people, whether it was a trainer or a friend, was fun. And I also. Began to develop some skills, although it's really not hard to cycle. Anyone can do it, and I realized like I enjoyed building my athletic skills, and I also began to feel that seeking to build those skills stretched me emotionally because I started doing things that were more and more out of my comfort zone. And you know, most of my days spent in my comfort zone. I feel pretty comfortable running businesses. I love the entertainment media communications business. I like investing. I like my family. I like my wife spend most of my days doing things where I feel comfortable and I, I like what I do. So by taking on these meaningful and more and more difficult uh, athletic challenges, I push myself to a place emotionally I hadn't been ever, maybe. And I'm not a quick study, actually, athletically. I maybe in other ways. And so it takes me a long time to get good at new sports. But you know what? I'm, I persevere. I'm not judgmental about myself. And eventually, I seem to get there. And I don't necessarily take pride in it. I don't think it would come across that way because the implication would be, I I would say, hey, I'm really awesome at this and it isn't how I feel and it isn't objectively how I am. But I I enjoy it. And I like the fact that I make progress. I'm always making progress. And um, the reason I wrote the book is I thought it was important to tell that story that you can make progress at any age. You can actually do amazing things at any age. You can be your best self at any age. I picked up
0: the book. It's really an amazing book. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are executives and, you know, they're always complaining about, you know, if you had my schedule and you were on a plane from New York to LA as often as I am, you know, I wouldn't be able to be in this level of shape. And so now for once, I could literally hand them this book and say, Google this guy's accomplishments, Google this guy's body and look what he did. So, for the executive that is, you know, largely ignoring this area of their life, or is, you know, saying that it's not possible, it's not possible for me to do. How would you tell them to start this and to be able to hold themselves accountable
1: to get it done? Well, the first is ask yourself what do you, what do you want because they may simply not be interested in it. And I'm not judgmental of people's desires and goals, but if, if what you want truly want is to be fit, or maybe you don't care about being fit, or you want to live long healthy life either way you got to start moving then what i'll say is no you can't be all things to all people at all times if you're busy but you can establish priorities you know we probably only can have a handful or less of priorities at a time i have four you know my family and my friends my work my fitness and my charity and uh, charitable work and mentoring and coaching work That's it. Those are my priorities. So there are things I care about that just don't fall on the list as much as I like, like seeing movies. I do like movies, but I can't always take the time for it because I focus on my four priorities. You get to choose too, and I bet I bet you have three. You're an effective guy, clearly good at what you do. I bet you have somewhere fewer than five priorities that matter to you. I've never run into anyone who has ten priorities who's effective across all of them, and the people with ten priorities are, you know, running around, you know in a scattered way, and usually aren't even super happy. So my advice is know what you want and and own it. And if what you want is, you know, I I like to drink, I like to eat, I like to and I don't, and I understand the consequences, then they should do that. They're not going to hear anything from me, but you should know what you want. And then if you know what you want, you understand, I think, as an adult that you have to choose. And it's a uniquely American fantasy to believe you can have it all. can't have it all.
0: No, this is great. I love uh, I I love that simple, you know, three, four, five priorities, and just stay in that zone. You know, you uh, you told a story in your book of how you and your wife took a hot yoga class, and you know, you came out of the class and you said that was a religious experience, and she came out and she said, "I'll never do that again." Is it a challenge for you to be way more into fitness than she is?
1: Well, she's into other things. She rides horses. And she likes walking, and the, both of those things take time. Um, no, it's a challenge. Her attitude about it is a challenge at times. And she mm-hmm. feels the same way about me. But I think usually we're pretty good about bridging the gap and respecting each other. Um, but yeah, sometimes she finds my attachment to fitness really irritating. And I find her irritation about my attachment to fitness really irritating. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's all right. We've been married. For- for twenty nine years, and we seem to have gotten used to it uh, yeah, well,
0: something's working you know I know that you have uh, stopped drinking. I love a glass of wine at night um, and I think you used to drink a little bit more than uh, than you do now if because I, I think you don't drink at all did you do you struggle with things like alcohol and wanting a glass when you're going out? socially with friends or, you know, it's Sunday and you're watching Netflix. If you do that, you know, uh, wanting to have some dessert, you know, how how do you deal? How do you deal with those? Let's call it two things, alcohol and desserts.
1: I eat dessert and I don't drink alcohol and, uh, I try not to struggle with either. Uh, no, I don't really, I don't miss drinking. it, it, It wasn't good for me and it was good to give it up. I tried to give up eating dessert and I really didn't like that. I'd uh, love to be in better and better shape, but I don't want to be someone whose life is just a. And by the way, it's so, people like this are so annoying anyhow, who, you know, just a, a description of discipline is your life. You know, it would be better not to eat sugar and processed carbs of any sort. They're just, they're not really good for you. I can't argue that they're good for you. But I do think a life of some moderation is probably good for you. And I don't think asking yourself to be disciplined about everything all the time is typically good for most people. There are some people for whom it works. My buddy Mark Perry, who has the website Built Lean, if you go on that site, there's a picture of Mark. That's actually what he looks like. Mark eats a very strict diet. It works for him. He doesn't feel deprived at all. He'll tell you he doesn't feel deprived. Uh, and he looks great. And the reason he looks great, he trains very intelligently. And he trains you know, reasonably hard. But, and he'll acknowledge this, and anyone who knows anything about fitness will, too. Once you get a modicum of weight-bearing exercise to look incredibly shredded, it's basically all about weight management. And weight management comes from you know how many calories you put in your body, and to a much, much, much lesser extent what the nature of those calories are. He's able to do it. I don't think he misses dessert at all, but I would really miss it. So you've got to be true to who you are. Uh, I'll, I'll never look as good as Mark but that's okay. Or at least it's okay for today. And if I, I, reserve the right to change my mind.
0: Yeah. What's your biggest challenge now at 60,
1: 61? Oh, I, you know, for me, the challenge is always, how do I grow? How can I be better at what I choose to do? How can I learn more? How can I have uh, better, deeper, more intimate relationships? How can I let go of things that are holding me back? How can I be um, of service to others? Uh, How can I be kind even when I don't feel like it? You know, how can I make this day beautiful? And uh, most days I rise to the challenge on most of those things from my own point of view. And every day I fall short in one, one or more ways.
0: Yeah, for sure. Do you wear a wearable? Where I first learned about you is on the Whoop podcast.
1: No, I don't. I did for a while. I'm so the way I'm wired, you know, if I wear a wearable uh, and I and I and I, whatever, whatever the, the data is that I look at, my only emotional takeaway is how woefully inadequate I am. <laughs> and I realized, that, I realized it just wasn't motivating me. It just made me feel bad. And uh, I took the computer off my bike too for the same reason. You know, I, I realized I'd be looking at the computer, not at the scenery. But my emotional experience of looking at the computer was I haven't ridden far enough and I haven't ridden fast enough. I never looked at the computer and thought that was an amazing ride and I crushed it. And I realized like, I don't know that it's a super healthy thing. You know, at all times I, you know, I just got a trophy. I don't know that that's great, but equally, I don't necessarily think it's productive to only have the emotional experience that that didn't work out so well, you know, and I was vaguely pathetic. So I realized that for me, given my wiring, that wasn't being very kind to myself. And one of the things I strongly advise in my book is be gentle with yourself. Don't ask too much. And I, I, it's hard for me because I ask a lot of myself and a lot of other people. I looked at it and I said, this isn't in service of my goals. It's not making me more fit. It's not making me work harder. It's just leaving me with kind of, you know, sort of a small, minor sense of negativity. That wasn't being kind to myself. So I abandoned the devices and the computers. If you find it motivating, a lot of people do. Great. And people who wear heart rate monitors, they find it motivating. And certainly, if you're training for for you know a, something competitive, depending on the sport, you kind of need to you know you need to measure stuff. If you're training to be a professional cyclist, you need to you know you need to measure, measure your power output. You need to measure your heart rate. I'm not suggesting you should do it without it. I'm not I'm not making suggestions for professional
0: training no it makes perfect sense i mean sometimes i i wake up and I, I look at my recovery from the night before and you know i have all of a sudden i have a bad day because my recovery was so bad the previous day and i didn't even
1: think exactly. i didn't even think i was upset <laughs> yeah. yeah no, no the inference and the whoop device yeah you know, i'd look at the quality of my sleep and the only i never once looked at the device and it never said to me wow you had a great night every, so
0: yeah every night it's like you got three minutes of deep sleep and i'm like that's it That's that's it. So, okay, so we're going to wrap up with a couple of uh, quick uh, rapid fire uh, questions. Just answer as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Kindness. What's one thing you're afraid of right now? Fear. What book have you reread the most? How to Win Friends and Influence People. What's your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. If you had to give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about and can really be on anything that you like or have a passion for or anything else at all, what would it be?
1: Salesmanship.
0: Hmm, interesting. Last question. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me?
1: When you look at your life broadly, both now and looking ahead, what is it that you want?
0: To spend time with my four year old and do a better job than I did with my nineteen year olds good sounds like a plan sounds like a plan uh, strauss uh, i was uh, I was super nervous to do this interview with you because of your um, accomplishments and accolades and um, I'm so glad I did. And I'm really, really grateful that you took the time to do this uh, with me. And um, I just I just want to say that you're an incredible inspiration to a lot of people and, and thank you for doing this.
1: Thanks, thanks for having me.
0: All right, thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game